Those who are operating the trap door, I want you to know I have two timers up here. That'll make some of you feel quite comfortable. Although those of you with more experience will realize it doesn't mean anything. And I just want you to know that uh, earlier I came up here to see if I could see that clock. And from where I'm standing, there's a light bulb right next to the clock. And I can't really see what the clock is saying. So anyhow, um, how many of you, let's see a show of hands, how many of you thought that the words of the song were 100% theologically correct? How many? How many? Okay. Um, how many of you thought that there was a problem with the theology of, of the draw me nearer, nearer part? Anybody, anybody think there was a little problem with that? Okay, just me. All right. Um, essentially, if, if you analyze it carefully, the theme goes, God Almighty, I want you to draw me nearer to you. And in the handout there, James tells us, in James 4 verse 8, he tells everybody for the next 2,000 years after he writes it, draw near to God. You church people, you believers in Christ, you draw near to God first, and then, when you are drawing near to him, he will draw near to you. And I looked up the Greek therefore draw near, and it primarily meaning, I put it in the notes, Greek definition is to approach. So, so whenever you approach towards God, to the Father, to Jesus, to the throne in heaven, you, based on this scripture, you can be 100% certain that God will fulfill that promise. And when you make the effort to draw near to him in prayer, in devotion, in song, in what, however you do it, in fasting, he will move closer to you. And we can see that in, in many cases throughout the scriptures. Also, Jesus tells us to come to him and to learn of him. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, are any of you heavy laden? Do any, any of you carry burdens week in, week out? He says, come, come, bring those burdens to me, right? because he cares so much. And then verse 29, take my yoke upon you, be a believer, do as I teach in scripture, and learn from me, which, which are just a few simple words in scripture, but, but we've got two billion Jesus-following people tomorrow morning, not, maybe, not, maybe not all of them, but most of them, are, are going to go out, get up early, and brush their teeth early, and get out before sunrise, and I hear it's going to rain in Tulsa. Oops, oh well. Um, and, and they're going to try to attach their heart to Jesus through an Easter sunrise service, which is spoken against in Scripture. It, it's a commandment of men. And he said, if you're going to learn and serve and worship me in vain through the commandments of men, I'm not paying attention. You need to depart from me. You need to get a hold of what I actually teach. So take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest to your souls. And when you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. So scripture tells us we are to be making the effort 
to seek out and to draw near to God and his holy ways. Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first, highest priority first, seek ye first the kingdom of God. When? Every day. Every day seek first with highest priority in your life the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things are going to be added to you, which we'll see in a little bit when we start going through the list of overcomers, the benefits and blessings for overcomers. So our destiny goal is to develop a passionate love for knowing and serving the Ancient of Days. Jesus said, my father is greater than I. I have come down to earth to tell you what my father has told me to tell you. I didn't make any of this up by myself. I'm simply the messenger bringing you what the father wants you to know. So when you obey the words of Jesus, you obey the words of the father. You are worshiping the ancient of days, the father. Mark 12, 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That, isn't that a little overdone? Isn't that like, you know, all right, we got it. We got it. We got the picture. You know, love God with everything you got. Yeah? But he stresses this. This is the first commandment. This is the highest priority commandment. This is the target for each day, to love God with all you have in your being. This is goal number one for an eternity with God. Jesus wants us to keep on growing our love relationship, day in, day out, day in, day out. Now, when a young man meets a young woman, God plays a trick on them. <laughs> they put on rose-colored glasses, and no matter what the other one does, this is the most perfect being on the planet. This is the one for me, you know. And two years after they're married, the coloring in the glasses starts to fade and they start dealing with life as it really is, right? And that's when you need to kick in, I am going to love you until death do us part, no matter what happens. And, and people get old and people get injured and people change. And the plan is to keep on loving your loved one and with your children. When your child is first born, right? Do, does anybody go, oh, my baby is ugly. <laughs> Does any, nobody does that, do they? It's like, oh, he's got big ears, or you know, he is so wonderful. I love him, you know. But then when he becomes a teenager, it's like, boy, this is quite an effort here to love my teenager who knows everything there is on the planet and I know nothing, until they turn 21 or 22, and then they realize, hey, mum and dad knew quite a lot, you know. So Jesus wants us to keep on growing our love relationship with him. And, and the love relationships we have in this, in this lifetime change. They ebb and they flow and, and loved ones die. And we have to carry on. But, but the love relationship we're developing with Jesus and the Father will never, never end. And it can keep on growing. And, and I don't want to be stagnant for all eternity. I believe we're going to be learning more and more. And we're, going to believe, we're going to be loving more and more. And we'll have billions of people to learn to love, right? You suppose it's just going to be a wave of the wand or a snap of the fingers. And, and every person that comes along, you just love them. 
you know, well, you know, well, we're going to have to learn to love people. Some people, you know, need some rehabilitation before they're really lovable. You know. So most children are great at asking. See, Jesus says, Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find and knock and it will be opened to you. What, what is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying, draw nearer to me and my father. And then he gives the promise, verse 8, he said, everybody who's in the asking pr mode process receives. Maybe not immediately, but eventually receives. And he who seeks, if you're truly seeking the word of God, you're going to find. It's going to, it will, you know, but maybe not immediately. And, and a lot of us might go, well, James said, draw nearer to God and he will draw near to you. And, and, <clears throat> You know, I think God's taking his time to draw near to me. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, God, come on. I'm short on time here today. Get moving. But God has the perfect plan, and he's the master of perfect timing. To him who knocks, it will be open. Most children are great. You, most of you know this. Children and grandchildren are automatically great at asking, seeking, and knocking. Why? Because I said so. Why? <laughs> you know, and, and why is one of their favorite questions? Because there's no, there's no end to how many whys you can ask, sort of thing. Right? So they're great at it. But as, as we, we lose that, as we grow older, and it becomes politically correct or whatever, not to, to ask a lot of questions. Right? In one church I was in a couple of lifetimes ago, um, if you asked the minister a question, you could be shown the door. Don't you be questioning me. I'm the minister, you know. And, and when you go to school or seminar, what's the best way to learn? Asking questions. What did Jesus just tell us? Ask and seek and knock and go pursue the knowledge that is so fabulous as beyond our human brains to comprehend it. So seeking and drawing near to God are critical to our hopes and our dreams. Whatever you hope for, whatever you dream, is small in this life compared to eternity. Eternity where you have everything. You sit on the throne with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I don't know if you stop and think about that, but that's one of the promises. You, if a faithful believer until death, will sit next to Jesus on his throne. Now, some of you mathematicians go, well, wait a minute. If Steve's sitting there next to Jesus, and Lawrence is sitting there next to Jesus, and there's going to be a huge line of people sitting there next to Jesus, not so special. He doesn't say about, think about that. He says, you, you alone, are going to be with me. What is he saying? He's saying, you're going to be in, with me in the government. You're going to have such a close personal relationship with me for all eternity, which you are now developing here in this lifetime which is what, you know, devotions, prayers, fasting, all these other things, ask, knock, seek. So in Revelation 3.20, Jesus pictures, and you might not have seen this, pictures an extreme case of drawing nearer to God. Revelation 3.19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Oh, who's he talking to? Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. What door is he standing at? Anybody want to 
suggest an answer? Louder? In a sense, the door of your heart. And remember he said in Scripture, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So if Jesus stepped outside the door of your heart, has he left you and forsaken you? No. He's still there. He's just outside. Right? And he loves you so much. And what is he, what's he doing outside? He says, I stand at the door and knock. I'm knocking at the door of your heart. Knock, 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 knock. Oh, and even though it doesn't say it, he then says, if anyone hears my voice. So not only is he knocking on the door of your heart, bang, 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 he's lifting up his voice outside the door. And what's he saying? That's up to you to figure out, right? But he's, he's saying, if you hear my voice and you hear me knocking on the door, turn the TV down so you can hear me knocking. Come to the door. If you hear my voice and you come to the door and open the door, you have to kind of picture this in your mind. He says, I will come in. And in my mind, I get the impression of you put the hand on the knob and you crack that door and you just barely get it open and the door flies open and Jesus grabs you up in one arm and rushes in to the table and then he says, and I will dine with him and he with me. We will have, in, in 2,000 year old language, when you supped with someone, when you ate with somebody, when you dined with them, that was close personal relationship that people that you ate with. And so he says, you know, just open the door and I'm coming in. So, but who, who made the first step? Was it Jesus? Did he draw nearer to you first? Or did he say, you hear my knocking and you hear my voice and you come to me at the door? You make the effort. And so what I'm suggesting to you is that in this song, which is a beautiful song, and I love it, and I've memorized it, and, you know, it's great. Okay, but, but the point is, God is telling us, contrary to the hymn, he's saying you make the first effort to come closer to me. And I will be Johnny on the spot, and I will move closer to you, and you can guarantee that. And here's, now who's he talking to? You know, the Laodicean church members. Oh, no. Verse 17, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you church members in Laodicea do not know that you are wretched. Wait a minute, Jesus, that's not politically correct. You cannot tell your church members that they are wretched. Sorry, scripture. Miserable. You are miserable church members. Oh, wait, he can't, he can't put that in writing, can he? You know, and poor and blind and naked because they were way out of line. And he said earlier, because I love you, I want you to repent and I'm going to chasten you so you'll repent. Like the prodigal father in the, the Godhead desperately want us safe, and we're learning more and more about the word safe. Uh, I've been in Belgium, and I've been in Paris, and I've been in San Diego, and the thought of innocent civilians being ripped apart 
for some theological reason, is just abhorrent to me. You know, cutting off heads. So, horrible, horrible. We're in a horrible, horrible world. And when we say safe, we have a deeper understanding of safe. And God wants us to be safe in their family forever and ever and ever. And the spirit being body in, in 1 Corinthians 15, oh, one of my favorite chapters, it's like, <clears throat> you can't hurt the spirit body. You can take a machete. You can take a two-before. Boom, 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 boom. And nothing happens to a spirit being body. It's like hitting the air. Nothing happens. It's fabulous. Right? You've got to sort of savor that and test that and understand that because that's the promise of God. Luke 15, 20. The, the prodigal father, and I'm using that term because you'll understand it's the prodigal son that's the focus. He, when, when he... He was still a far great way off. The father is told that somebody's coming over the hill. You know, and somebody said, oh, look, somebody's coming. And, the, and his father, when he saw this distant figure coming, he had compassion. That's Jesus. That's God the Father. They have immense compassion and mercy on all human beings. He just wished that they would learn to do it his way, to learn righteousness his way. So the father had compassion, and he ran. Well, that's not very presidential, is it? It's like, this is the patriarch of the family. What's he doing? And in those days, you had to hitch up your robe. You know, what was it, loins? Um, how do they say that? Gird up, gird up your loins. There you go. It's, nobody uses that language anymore, do they? Gird up your loins. So he had to gird up his loins and he ran and said, now listen here, son, I've got a few things to say to you. No, he fell on his neck and he kissed him. This was the son who was way out of whack. Right? Jesus says, great news. My father wants you safe. And we have this little prodigal father demonstrating what none of us would expect. If we were writing a novel, we would not have written that. It's like nobody will believe this kind of stuff. That is not human. This is divine. This is God Almighty speaking of how he feels for us. Luke 12, 32. Do not fear, little flock. And we live in a world of fear. If you turn on the TV, which is a pain, it's annoying, it's... You know, and, or, and, and now, you know, young people don't even know what TVs are. They'll do it all through, uh, through iPhones and iPads and i this and i that and all that other stuff. You know, some of which I do not understand. And I do press the wrong button and the crazy things happen, but whatever. Right? So Jesus is still very active in saving us into God's kingdom. Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man is come to seek... And to save. Isn't that great? Isn't that super? Jesus, the creator God of the universe, the one who suffered and died and bled, as we will, you know, Passover's coming and we will focus in on that. You know, he came to earth to seek and to save. He's been seeking us. And even, I'm, not, I'm not telling you that the words of the hymn are 100% wrong theologically. I'm just saying that 1% of that is kind of true. But God has already done his 1%. 
in the sense that, or maybe I should say it the other way around, God has already done the 99%. He's created the Bible. I was going to hand up my Bible, but I lost my Bible. Right? I use this as my Bible now. It's like when I'm sitting with people, I, they say, oh yeah, it says in the Bible, and I, and I pull up the Bible app, and I, and I get to it, and then I read it to them. This is my Bible. And I've mislaid my hand Bible, which has got really tiny little print, and I try not to read it much anymore. But this is, this is a way better way of doing it. Anyhow, so he says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So when Jesus, the Bible is the number one best-selling book on the planet. So all seven billion people out there ought to have enough brands to go, well, the Bible is the number one selling book on the planet. I might ought to check that out. And strange enough, when I was first coming to the knowledge of the truth, I, uh, I'd just gotten a little taste of it. And one day I said to myself, self, if there is a God, and this is his book, and I die, and I stand in front of him, he's going to say, did you read my book? And it dawned on me that they would be super stupid to say, ah, uh, I was too busy. <laughs> so, so all seven billion people on the planet ought to go, bing, it's the number one best-selling book. Why? Is that true? And if Jesus and all that was a hoax and there was, and it was just a fake thing, how come it developed into the number one movement on the planet? If there are two billion Jesus following people alive today, in the last 2,000 years, how many Jesus-following people have been born and died in 2,000 years? All because there was really no Jesus. It was just a hoax. Yeah, come on. Are you, are you standing on planet Earth or are you somewhere else? You know? um, so they eagerly, the father and the son, they eagerly want huge blessings for those who are making the effort to draw nearer to them, who are making the effort to overcome what is hurtful. Now, the Bible says evil a lot of times. It says sin. And the basic definitions there are hurtful. And you can hurt somebody just by rolling your eyes when they say something. You can hurt people that way. You can hurt people by hanging up on them. <laughs> you, know, you can hurt people by never answering their texts. How many of you text? Anybody here text? Come on, some of you do. Yeah, admit it. Come on, you're you're addicted to it. I know. All right. So so you can offend people. You can hurt people, and husbands and wives learn this, and children, you know, they do it all the time. They just don't know how much they've hurt their parents, you know. And, but then when the parent hurts the child, it's the end of the world, you know. Oh, yeah. But but so he's saying, and and in the news we can see super, super evil in the news. If we had lived back in World War II, we would have seen super, super evil going on in the world. Right? And so sin, hurtfulness, can be very small or medium or large or humongous. And we're seeing humongous hurtful in the world today. Revelation 2.11 says, 
he who, let's see, he who overcomes. And this is, this is the last book of the Bible. This is Jesus speaking. I don't know if you knew Bibles, it's in red letter or not, but it should be in red letter, right? Jesus is saying to all of the seven churches he's picked out to correct, and in most cases he says, repent, church, repent, turn around, go a different direction. In Revelation 2.11, he says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, you know, there it is in print. Two billion people don't believe there is a second death. They've been taught since they were yay high, little bitty babies, right, that everybody gets an immortal soul. And you will go on living forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, either in heaven looking into the face of Jesus or in hell being suffered and tortured forever and ever and ever for all those sins you committed in a few years of living on planet Earth because God is love. That makes sense, doesn't it? Right, so anyhow, there it is, second death. And... <laughs> I listen to a lot of Christian radio, and, and these people, they avoid this verse and these words, second death, like the plague. And on a rare occasion when they'll actually mention it, they have some twisted, perverted thing like, you know, <clears throat> um, you're dead, but you're still alive. Like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. You know, down in Texas, we have a whole lot of armadillos like this with their feet up in the air, and you drive by. And, and, you know, when you're young or when you come from Australia and you see this, you know for certain, and you could stop the car and get out and poke them with a stick if you wanted, but they are dead. They are not living. They are dead. And dead means not living. But most people should know that, but they don't know. Theologically, they don't know that. Revelation 2.26 says, um, <clears throat> He who overcomes and keeps my works, i.e. my words, the words, the works that my words teach, until the end, until your last breath, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of righteousness. You heard about it in the uh, devotion earlier. You know, if, if you do this, I will do this. You can take it to the bank because I'm the creator of God and the universe and I'm telling you in scripture how it all plays out. And if you have eyes to see, everything you're seeing in the news is precisely what God has written thousands of years ago. Check Daniel, the 11th, 12th chapters. Um, and, and it's just, it's falling into place, boom. Just like God said, boom, another one, boom, another one, boom, another one. You know, you could, you could almost lay it out in a computer model and say, uh, and then comes this next big event, and then comes this next big event, because you get it out of Scripture, and God said, this is how it's going to happen. So, it keeps my work to the end. I will give him power over the nations. And I've heard, back in the worldwide days, ooh, are you allowed to say that? Anyhow. Back in those days, I would, I would talk to people and they would say, well, I don't care about ruling people. It's like, oh boy, I would like to have power over ISIS tomorrow morning. Would they have a sunrise service? I tell you, it would be different. But right now I don't have that, but he's promising that's what we're going to have. Revelation 3.12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. How many of you want to be a pillar? One, two, a couple, and you know, you're supposed to put your hand up, right? What kind of a pillar do you want to be? Huh? It's a great story. I don't have time to tell it to you. But my wife went to Ephesus and saw pillars. Yeah, like I say, I don't have time to tell you that. Ask me later. All right, um, Revelation 3.12. He who comes, I make a pillar in the temple of my God. 
Whatever that means, it's got to be super important. You're going to be a pillar. Holding up the roof is what pillars do. You know, except for ancient ruins, you never see pillars with nothing on top of them, do you? They hold up the roof. How many of you are happy that the roof is being held up right now? See? You're happy. See? Pillars hold up roofs. Okay. Um, so what, it, what he's saying is it's going to be a close, close relationship with the Father and the Son. Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. Hands up if you think this is true. It's true. Now, we would probably all have difficulty explaining how it exactly works. But it is true, and we just have small brains, and we're not fully able to fathom and, and grab it. But, but in a sense, it's like rubbing shoulders with the supreme loved ones. You all have loved ones. You love your loved ones. The Father and Jesus are the supreme loved ones. That if you fully understand it, you desperately want, your heart wants, even if your brain isn't caught up yet, your heart wants to live in perfect harmony, in a great passionate love affair with the Father and the Son for all eternity with no cares, no sorrows, no heartaches. No one will be unsafe. Right now, we, you know, my daughter's going to Paris in a couple of weeks, months, whatever, and I'm not happy about that. She's happy. I'm not happy. But God, watch over that gal. You know. So, down to Revelation 21.7, he who, this is, you know, second last chapter in the book. He's going he's to sum it up, wrap it up here. He's going to say, this is how it finishes. Oh, by the way, he who overcomes, he who makes the effort to overcome, he who makes the effort to draw nearer to me, I will draw nearer to him. He who overcomes will inherit Donald Trump's $10 billion empire. Ten billion? That ain't nothing. Let's try ten trillion. How many of you can picture ten trillion dollars? Ah, done a little scientific. Yeah, if you stack hundred dollar bills, it goes up a couple of miles, I think. It's immense. But anyhow, I don't generally use the word trillion because it's like, I'm never going to see a trillion. You know. but, but if we inherit all things, he says, I will be his God, and he will be my son or daughter. And there's just a few simple little words. But out a couple of million years, you're going to reflect back on these words, and you're going to go, oh, nothing better in God's spiritual universe than being a son or daughter of God and him being my God and my father. So where do we get the power to be victorious overcomers? In the book. King David would answer it this way. In Psalm 119, 97, he said, Oh, how love I your law. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Some of you know, loving God's law is not a good thing. Right? The way they tell it out on Christian radio. Because that makes you a legalist. Oh, oh, I said it, that nasty word. You're a legalist. Well, when I drive to a four-way stop anywhere in America, I'm a legalist. I go, oh, stop sign coming up, better stop. Boy, I hope everybody else does too. Right? 
But a lot of people have driven, stopped, and then pulled forward, and then been smashed by somebody who wasn't a legalist. And said, I don't care about the stop sign, or I'm busy on texting, or I'm, calling, I'm arguing with my wife, on second wife, third wife, on the phone, whatever, you know, and semi-trailer takes you out, right? Uh, we want legalism when it comes to law-abiding people. Over in Belgium, if everybody in the airport had been legalists and law-abiding people, there would have been nobody dead. Right? God wants us to obey and love his law like King David did. And, and if you love God's law, you love him. It's his law. He wrote it. There's a law in Belgium. Belgium, I can't believe it. The government made a law where you, the police cannot, uh, cannot go into a suspect house after 9 o'clock at night. They have to wait until 6 o'clock the next morning because it's disruptive to the family. How would you like to be a SWAT team in America and there's a meth lab in there that could blow at any minute and you know for certain and you've got the judge's warrant and it's like one minute to nine. Oh, see you guys in the morning. It's like, what? We got criminals. We got violent criminals. Yeah. Yeah. So that law I do not like, right? as you can well imagine. All right, so... <coughs> Billions and billions and trillions of people he wants in the kingdom. And he who overcomes will inherit all things. And that's worth, you know, inherit all things. You know, we've got a few things in our lives, in our houses, in our garages. Do we have a few things in our garages? Yeah, right? We have a few things. He's saying you're going to inherit all things. Everything there is, you're going to inherit it. Now, you know, later on, come up to me and explain to me how... Any one of us can inherit all things. It's bigger than our little brains can handle, isn't it? But it's huge, right? Okay, so where do we get the power to be victorious? King David told us. Proverbs portrays us tying something around our necks. Oh, look, he's got something tied around his neck. It makes it pretty visible. It makes it pretty obvious, right? So here's Proverbs saying, you know, let not mercy and truth or trustworthiness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Now, you ladies may put on your, your favorite necklace when you go to church or when you go to a special occasion. And so what is bound around your neck is very precious to you. And you'll probably get several people say, that is a beautiful necklace. You know, it's visible, it's something valuable, it's something important. He's saying bind mercy and truth and trustworthiness around your neck so you don't lose them. So you, don't, you know, and I'm not quite there yet, but I, every now and then I lose my glasses. And I can't see to find my glasses when I don't have them on. And, and an older, much older friend of mine in the ministry, he's got little, little, uh, lanyard tether thing and he just lets his glasses hang down here around his neck and that way when he wants to see something in the distance or whatever he goes oh here they are okay now I can see now I can see what's going on so around your neck and then it says write them on the table of your heart so um, <coughs> what does this mean it means it needs to be highly visible to ourselves right and most of you are looking up here and you're going, what is that weird Australian doing with a red thing tied around his neck? 
Right? Well, it has several good things. One, I'm not spitting into the microphone. Right? They've got this little cover here. Two, you're looking up here and you're going, oh, he tied something around his neck. Right? And then write it on the table of your heart. What does that mean? Hebrews 8.10, and most Baptist ministers on Christian radio, they, this is oblivious to them. This is the covenant that I, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, will make with the house of Israel and with the true believers in those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws. Oh, you mean they're important? You mean God's laws? <laughs> He's God, isn't he? If God makes a law, wouldn't that be super important? Yeah. I will put my laws in their minds and write them in their hearts, and I will be their God and they will be my people. There we go again. Right? How will they be my people? Because they're law-abiding citizens. Isn't this saying God's laws will be functioning deep inside of our beings? Now, hands up if you know what Good Friday means. Anybody know what Good Friday means? Yeah, yeah, I saw that hand. That's good. Okay, yeah. People know what Good... What does Good Friday mean? It's what? Louder. Yeah, yeah, they all believe Jesus died on a Friday. And the reason they believe that is because they don't pay attention to Scripture is the reason. They don't, they don't, count, they don't figure it out. You know, and so for two billion people who read the same Bibles as you and I read, they go, you know, <clears throat> they don't understand the holy days. They don't understand that God's calendar, God's day, ends at sunset. They figure just like today, God, you know, when you set your clocks forward, you get up in the morning at two o'clock and you move them forward or backwards or whatever you do, right? But the day ends at midnight. Everybody knows that, except God. God doesn't do it that way. The day ends at sunset. That's how God does it, right? And they don't know that. They didn't bother to study or research or draw nearer to God to understand that, right? So, um, what has happened to us? Why are we so different? You know, we're not planning to go out tomorrow morning for sunrise services. What's the matter with us? Why are we different? Right? Because we have written the truth, trustworthiness on our hearts by studying, by drawing near to the scripture, to the laws of God. You know, law, law. You know, most, most people don't want to have to be told what to do. How many of you love somebody telling you what to do? How many of Anybody? Anybody? None of the children put their hands up and notice that, right? No way. We don't like being told what to do, right? But since God is God and he's got the whole ball of wax in his hands and he's offering eternal life, he's saying, you do it my way and it's going to be really good. You do it my, not, you, you, know, you disobey my way and you're going to pay. You're going to suffer, you know, until you learn the lesson. You, you know, the lesson is to be learned. I repent because I love and, and, and uh, chastise people, and I want you to change your mind and come around and seeing it the way I see it, because I'm God and I have eternity and spirit being bodies to give you. So how do we do this? Same as the Bereans did it. I love this in Acts 17, 11. He said, they received the word with all readiness. What does that mean? That means Paul came along, the great apostle, and met with a bunch of people in Berea and he said, have you all heard that Messiah came and died and was crucified and was put in the tomb for three days and three nights and then he rose again. And they went, 
What? In Isaiah, it says, on his shoulders will be the government. And of the end of his kingdom, there will be no end. How can you possibly say that, Paul? But, but they listened to understand what it was that Paul was saying. And then they went home that night, and they searched the scriptures that night to see if scripturally what Paul was saying was in fact true. And he told them that he would come as a lamb and that he would suffer and die. And he pointed the scriptures out to them. And they said, well, I always wondered what that scripture meant. So they went home at night and they studied daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. And they came back to him the next day. How do we know that? Because they studied it daily. They didn't just do it one day. They, they heard they, they said, okay, what Paul is saying, pretty much like what I did when I started reading the Plain Truth magazine. It would, it would come in the mail, and it would say, <clears throat> you know, as it says in this, and it would give the Bible reference, and, you know, I was an Australian being taught by an American on the, on the radio who wanted my money. Right? I knew that. So I'd stop on that scripture, and I would go, where's my Bible? Oh, it does say that. Okay, good. So I paid attention. I checked it with the scriptures. I, I you know, searched the scriptures daily to see if it was true. And little by little by little, brick by brick by brick, fence post by fence post by fence post, I, I, I said, man, this plain truth has a lot of fabulous information that, that makes the Bible come alive. So... Um, you know, and then, and then after they searched the scriptures daily and they found out that these things were true, many of them became believers. Many people joined the church, same way, pretty much I did, and maybe some of you did too. So we have searched the scriptures to passionately know that Jesus was dead for three days and three nights. Pretty hard to misinterpret or mistranslate the number three. And then... A day and a night. Most of us have learned what a night is. And when you, when you go, <clears throat> okay, he died on a Friday. That's day one. And he was dead Friday night, right? See, day one, night one. Saturday morning, day two. Saturday night, night two. Sunday morning he rises. Day three. Uh-oh. There's something missing. There's a night missing. How'd that happen? Well, maybe what it means when it says three days and three nights, it really means three days and two nights. God made a mistake. When God was editing the Bible, he made a mistake. Uh -uh. Take it, you know, believe what it says, and, and if you believe what it says, you can't possibly expect that he, was, he rose Sunday morning when if three days and three nights works out the way it did, he was already risen on the first, early in the first day of the week. So he rose about three days and three nights after he went into the tomb, which was late on a Wednesday afternoon, Thursday afternoon, Friday afternoon, Saturday afternoon, Sabbath. As the sun was getting ready to set on the Sabbath, he arose three days and three nights later. You know, so it's like, forget Sunday, folks. <laughs> you know. So how do they not know this? Okay, um, this, is, this is a little bit of science here for you, science buffs. This is, 
I, I wanted to get a model of your brains. Your brains weigh about three pounds, maybe more, maybe less, whatever. But I saw this and I thought, okay, that's my model of a brain. All of you have a brain. Put your hand up if you have a brain. Do you have, most of you have brains, that's good. Okay, so <clears throat> what happens is our eyes, you know, some of us have to wear glasses, our eyes see things on the page in the Bible. These, that's our outer eyes. And you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Eyes are eyes are eyes. What do you mean outer eyes? What is he talking about? Well, your eyes here see the words on the page, which is what the Bereans did. They searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying. Their, their eyes saw the words in scripture. And that transmitted to, the eyes transmitted the message to the brain. Now, the brain has inner eyes. What do they look like? I don't know. I just made it up. Right? But, but your outer eyes see things and they send messages to your brain. But then your brain has to go, oh, I see it. And it means you perceive it, you understand it, you comprehend it with the eyes of your mind. And most people, they, don't, they, they read John 3.13, Jesus speaking, no man has ascended into heaven. I know what that means. That means when you die, you go to heaven. Um, here, borrow my glasses. You know, read it again. Okay, no, Jesus speaking, no man has ascended into heaven. What do, you, what do you suppose those words mean? Well, I don't know, but I do know that when you die, you go to heaven. And, okay, how do you know that? Well, everybody tells me that. Well, what about Jesus? He just told you no man goes to heaven. Doesn't he count? Isn't he one of your everybody's? You know, no man has ascended into heaven. Oh, that doesn't matter. It's, I don't know. My inner eyes don't understand. I don't understand that. I don't comprehend that. I don't want to know. They're not drawing nearer to understanding. So you need to you know, see with your outer eyes. You need to see with your inner eyes. You need to come to a knowledge and an understanding. The brain acknowledges what the eyes saw in the words. Then our inner eyes, the eyes of our brain, searched and saw the understanding of those words. Which is why we use the same Bibles as most of the two billion people who serve and worship Jesus and will go to sunrise services tomorrow even if it's raining. Because they're devoted. See? Little rain isn't going to keep them from looking for sunrise through the clouds while it's raining. You know, which, you know, theoretically it's important to see the sunrise. But if you can't, I guess you get wet. <laughs> you know, but, but their brains are not taught to analyze and see and understand. David rejoiced and was passionately in love with God's teaching, therefore he was passionately in love with God. Psalm 119, 162. I rejoice, says David, at your word. Okay, do we rejoice when we read and study and hear about God's word? It's the most fabulous thing on the planet which doesn't seem to say very much, does it? In the, unit, in the solar system, 100, let's see, 93, 93 million miles. What is that? Anybody? Distance to the sun. Look, the sun is shining. So if you went outside and you put your hand on a, on a sun ray, boop, hit your hand, 
That sun ray just traveled 90, well, over a period of time, not a very long period of time, but traveled 93 million miles to your hand. And without the sun, you're dead. So, so the solar system, you know, God put all of this together so that we could be drawn near to him, but he tells us in scripture, you need to draw near to me. You need to get your outer eyes in the book and analyze what your outer eyes are seeing and telling your brain and let your inner eyes inside your brain. So, but I don't understand. And there's all kinds of people in the church who on certain topics, they do understand. And so you can get wise counsel from people in the church and you can get explanations and they can take you to scriptures. Don't just, don't just accept it because somebody said, this is what I believe, this is my opinion. Oh, yeah, watch TV. There's people getting paid big bucks for giving their opinion. That's right. I love it. I love it. Because they're all eating crow right now. You know, oh, that Donald Trump, he'll fizzle. He won't even run. Oh, okay, he's running. Well, he won't last more than, you know, okay. And <laughs> it's, it's like Karl Rove. Yeah, anybody ever seen Karl Rove with this whiteboard? You know, he got up there month after month after month after month and told us categorically why Donald Trump would fail. Shortly. Hasn't happened yet. You know, it's getting to be wherever I see Karl Rove's face and his whiteboard, <laughs> I start laughing. It's like, come on, you don't know nothing. You don't know where this is going. You know. Okay, so we need to assimilate. David was assimilating this. In Psalm 119, in verse 162, I rejoice in your word as one who finds great treasure. Great treasure. Verse 163, I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. I love you and your law, and therefore, because I love you and your law, I hate lawlessness. And, you know, the same Bible you're reading, two billion people are reading, and it says, Jesus says, depart from me, you who practice, in the old King James, if you're an old King James, because the apostles were using the old King James, right? Right? It says, iniquity. You practice iniquity. And most people go, I haven't seen one of those lately, have you? you know, what's an iniquity? I don't know. But in the New King James, it says, you practice lawlessness. It's like, I wonder what Jesus means by lawlessness. Does that mean driving one or two miles an hour over the speed limit? Is that, is that, is that what he's saying? No, he's saying the law of God. He's going to write the law of God in our hearts and our minds so that we can live from that knowledge. Right? So, King David was renewing his mind daily. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. And two billion Jesus-following people read the Bible, but then they're conformed to the commandments of men, and they're conformed to the accepted. You know, Christmas. Christmas is two words. Christ. Mass. What's M-A-S? What's a mass? You know, what is that? It's a Roman Catholic Mass. Oh, so the Roman Catholics invented Christmas for us. Yeah. Do you follow the Pope? No. Do you follow the Pope's Christmas? Yes. You know, a lot of them do. Uh, you know, so, wait, you know, use the inner eyes of your brain to think this through. Right? So, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. 
by the renewing of your mind day in and day out in your devotions to Christ and God and your prayer and your study and, and your fasting, whatever, right? That you may prove with the inner eyes of your understanding what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. Is it God's per good and acceptable, perfect will of God that you agree with Jesus in John 3.13 when he says, no man has ascended in heaven? Is that part of God's good and perfect, acceptable will? It is, isn't it? It's in Scripture. It's right there. He said it with his red-letter Bible, right? Okay, transformed there by the renewing of your mind. If you look at the Greek, it, it's like renovation, right? How many of you are already renovating something in your house? Anybody here doing renovation? My daughter just finished renovating her kitchen, right? And she's in... <laughs> H-O-G, heaven, right? She's ecstatic. Her new renovated kitchen is like, ah, a trillion dollars. You know, she's just thrilled. She, and at the beginning, she said, Dad, we're, I'm going to move the stove to there, and I'm going to eliminate that window. We're going to move this door, and we're going to have another door over here. And when I went and saw it the other day, it was different from what she said. So as they were doing it, she was still renovating. She was still moving things around and changing. And that's what our inner eyes of our understanding of our brain need to be doing. Each day we learn, we see something, we renovate the mind. We renew the mind, the intellect, the understanding to prove what is acceptable to God. Psalm 119, 164 says, Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgment. Great peace have they. Most of you know this verse. Great peace have they who love your law, i.e. they love you. They love God with all their heart and soul and mind and being. And nothing causes them to stumble or fail or fall or fall short or not be there in the kingdom. So we grow to love God by loving his laws and rejecting lawlessness. It's pretty simple. You know, none of us will be perfect at it. So hands up if you are eager to have your law-abiding children or grandchildren become drug addicts. Deacons, are you counting all those hands? There are no hands up. What? You don't want your law-abiding children and grandchildren to become drug addicts? What's going on here? Because you don't want them to ruin their life. And God doesn't want you, anybody to ruin their lives, although he's allowed this first 6,000-year period for a lot of people to do a lot of dumb, stupid things. But then comes the millennium, a thousand years of teaching people not to do dumb, stupid things, right? And it's like, oh, I'm going to build a bomb. <laughs> Excuse me. No, you're not. It's like, yes, I am. Stretch your hand out. Now he's got leprosy. It's like, uh, I can't move my hand. Well, that means you can't build a bomb. <laughs> so do you still want to build a bomb? Uh, I can't. Well, if you say you don't want to build a bomb, I'll give you a hand back. Okay, I don't want to build a bomb. My hand works again. Yay, this is great. All right, I'm still going to build a bomb. Leprosy. <laughs> it's like, you know, there's, there's friendly ways to help people not build bombs. Right? So our Father and Jesus, they love us so much, they give us many warnings about turning away from the glorious truths of God. Hebrews 10, 39. <clears throat> but we are not of those who draw back, draw away from, back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the souls. Jesus warns us of gigantic deception ahead of us in Scripture there, Mark 13, 22. 
False Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the elect. It's going to be incredible false. And if you're not careful, do you realize that back many years ago, like half of the worldwide church of God who were elect, in my opinion, they were elect and they were deceived into lawlessness without one single lying wonder or miracle. That it was possible for them to be deceived. Jesus is saying, watch out because lying wonders and things are coming and calling fire down from heaven might impress a lot of people. But Jesus told us ahead of time it's going to happen and if you haven't seen me coming in the clouds in the sky with a, riding a white horse with a whole bunch of white horse angels coming behind me, it's not me, right? So Paul describes this time in Thessalonians and he says... <coughs> In Second Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one, God doesn't like the lawless one, is according to the working of Satan, all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception of those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. The love of the truth is how we learn to love God. The most important thing we can do with our lives is love God with all our heart and soul and mind and being. So loving God comes from loving what he's teaching us. In Second Thessalonians 2.11, for this reason... God himself will send strong delusion. He will allow Satan and the beast to have power for three and a half years. To get people to decide with the inner eyes of their brain, go left or go right. And pretty much everybody on the planet, except, except those who worship Allah, right? Pretty much everybody on the planet is either going to love the two witnesses and hate the... Oh, okay. Trapdoor is about to open. All right. You know, so, so God is going, which side do you want to be on? Do you want to worship the beast, like I told you not to, or do you want to worship the God that the two witnesses are teaching about? And so he, he makes it clear, choose one way or the other, right? So then... <clears throat> Trapdoor is going to open any minute now. So we, we have to use the inner eyes of our brain to understand what's going on. He says, you know, when they say, here is the Christ, the man of perdition, the lawless one, the beast, is going to appear like he's the Christ. And two billion now, or whatever, whatever Jesus-following people, are going to eat it up and they're going to say, this is the Christ. And he says, I'm warning you, don't do it. Don't go there. This is the wrong direction to go in. If anyone, this is Revelation 14.9, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark of his so they can stay alive and so they can buy and sell and so keep on living, right? Verse 10, he himself will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Anybody here excited to want a drink of the wrath of God? Not me. If, you know, if your dad or your mom got angry with you, you learned, watch out for the wrath of mom and dad, right? The woodshed. In America, you have this saying, you know, dad took me to the woodshed. <gasps> now, nobody knows what that means. But back then, it meant a lot, right? The wrath of God, the wrath of your parents. So Jesus and the Father want us safe into eternity, and they provide inner eyes for our brains to do the, the sifting, the analyzing, the sorting through, the figuring out. If he said it, it's true. So something else that men teach can't be true if it's opposite of what he said was true. So um, 
Luke 21, 36, watch therefore and pray always. Watch means be on guard, be sleepless. Don't fall asleep. You're supposed to be guarding against deception. Pray always that you might be accounted worthy to escape all these things. What things? The tribulation. Is that possible? It seems like he just said that. Right? And, and it took me many years in God's church to see that. He said, you know, if you're sleepless spiritually and you're always praying, praying every day, every day, and you, you know, every, sometimes things happen and we miss a day or whatever, but we get back to the habit of praying every day, our devotions, right? He, he says that you may two things, one, stand before the Son of God and sit with him on his throne, and two, escape all these things. You don't have to go through the tribulation. It's like, oh, you can't teach that. We've got to be tough. We've got to be willing to die for God. Well, if that's needed, okay, be ready to die for God. But he said, in some cases, it's not needed. Right? So you know, be close to God. Be drawing near to God. God hovers over us, ready to assist us when we call on him. When we draw near to him, he draws near to us. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted, says the Bible, tested is a better understanding, beyond what you're able. You know, if you're drawing near to God, he's going to be close to you, hovering over you, helping you, and he will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able, but with that testing, will make a way of escape that you can bear it. Really good verse for tough times that are coming ahead. Proverbs 3, 6, In all your ways... Acknowledge him, i.e. know God, i.e. in the Greek, ascertain by seeing. Acknowledge God, ascertain by seeing. And that's what two billion people are not doing. They're not ascertaining by seeing with the inner eyes of their mind. It also can mean as a familiar friend. Is God your familiar friend? He wants to be. Oh, but he's God. Yeah, but he says, call me Father. And Jesus says, I'm going to marry the church and you can sit with me on my throne. That's a great friendship relationship. It also means to regard or to perceive or to understand which the inner eyes of your mind need to be doing. And then, rest of verse 6, then he will direct your paths. He's going to tell you what to do. Actually, in Greek it means make pleasant, prosperous, and upright your paths. Anybody experienced any of that so far? Has God helped you have pleasant, prosperous, upright living? Yeah. It's working, isn't it? Right? It's true. It's what he's saying. So, so as we draw near to him, he's going to help us through whatever may come. And I believe that he's going, because we have family and children and grandchildren and extended family, he knows where every single one of those is. And when my daughter flies to Paris, he's going to know exactly where she is every second of every day. And I need to calm myself down and accept that. So isn't this why God wants all of us to draw nearer to himself? Now, this may be helpful. To some of us here, after our daily event devotions, we could ask ourselves 
after our prayer, Bible study, whatever it is, we could ask ourselves this question. Using the mind's eyes, do I love God and Jesus more today than yesterday? Brethren, if you would, please rise.